Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> Introducing our guest, Quan. Quan is a convicted murderer and former Vietnamese gang member. He felt no remorse till he found his turning point in literature. He has transformed himself from being a murderer to a valued member of society, helping other prisoners to reform. Quan, I am so excited about this interview. Let's dive right in. What's your relationship like with your parents? Yeah, I lost my father when I was 13, so... Um, Tell me about that. He passed away from leukemia. That was like my hero growing up. He got diagnosed with leukemia when I was eight. He's the one that answered all my life's questions for me because we would go on these like long drives. He started the Vietnamese Refugee Association to help immigrants, well, actually Vietnamese immigrants, adjust to their new homeland over here. He went to the Vietnamese Military Academy in South Vietnam, and he actually came to the U.S. to train with U.S. forces, I guess, during the Vietnamization process of Lyndon B. Johnson. When he started the Vietnamese Refugee Association, I think he was a huge social and political activist. It took me like over 25 years to begin to grieve his death. And that was during my prison sentence when I looked back like, damn, look what the hell my life has created. And my dad, 30, what, eight years on earth, what he was able to do. And, and then I contrasted that with what I had done in my life. That's where part of the motivation for my process of change began during prison. Why were you angry at your parents? I was angry at my mom because she, at the time, had pushed our faith on us a lot. Like, oh, just pray, just pray. So every time my father goes in the hospital, I would pray. And then he comes home. So I think it's okay. Then he goes back in. I'm praying. I'm thinking somehow I'm responsible, you know, very irrational way of thinking, but that's just what I believed at the time. Leading up to his death, we had our first communion and my belief was, okay, I'll just wait till my first communion and I'm going to pray and my father's going to live. You know, that's going to be my first prayer and God's got to honor that. My mom had already said like, you know, doctor said he doesn't have much longer to live. Father's Day that year fell on, it also fell on Mother's Day and it was also our day of our first communion. The morning that I woke up to go to our communion, we found out that my father died the night before. My sister's the one that told me. So I think that's where I also believe like God killed my dad just so that he wouldn't have to answer my prayer. He was like that as a kid. Oh, that's what I believe. And it was convenient at the time. My last parole was in 1998. And still with all those feelings of anger and failure and everything leading up to it, I got a job at the Gallup organization. I was their 1998 interviewer of the year, and they had asked me to interview for a management position. Because right there, I thought, oh, finally, my life is going to be right for once. That's what I believed. They came back. They said, we're sorry, but you're not a fit for a position, which crushed me once again. And within like a week, week and a half, I had gone out to that club in Hollywood up in Los Angeles, brought a gun with me. And when I came out, I found out they got in a fight with a group from a different gang. We followed them on the freeway and that's who I ended up shooting and killing. One man in the car named Min Nguyen and I shot at the other three men. I hit another person and injured him. They had tried me for a death penalty and I went to prison. Even after going into prison for that, I'm ashamed to say I had no remorse. Somewhere during that time, I think the 12th year of my prison sentence, it was a time of questioning myself. Like, what am I doing in this world? Is this 
it for my life? Am I meant to die in here? They weren't paroling anybody at the time. I've always been a bookworm. That's where I found a lot of my own release. But then during that time, I was really fascinated with business books, which led me to autobiography. Somehow I ended up on books on the saints. I gravitated towards them because I realized that each one of them were also very flawed at one time or another, but they were able to leave such amazing legacies. So my head began to be filled up with, well, how do I leave legacy? Even if I'm supposed to die here in prison, what can I do? One day I stood there and it was like, wait, I can change. Prison doesn't have to be this place of punishment. It can be a place where I can remake myself and it can be a place where I can leave a legacy even if I die. The sun came up that morning and I felt the warmth from it. I saw on the individual blades of grass, dew, and right above me up in this razor wire, I heard the chirp of a sparrow. And I tell everybody, like, yeah, he'd probably been chirping 12, 13 years, and I never once heard it, but that day I heard it. And that day, prison was no longer like this cold, harsh place of punishment, but it became a place where I began to connect with other human beings along their own journey, and it became a place where I began to remake myself and find myself. Yeah, it took like five years later, I went to the parole board, and they just said, we no longer think that you're a threat to society, and we're going to parole you. How did you feel when you were given parole? It was shocking. It was exciting. But then even after that, there's a point where, okay, the paroling us but there's a process of you got to wait five months to see if the governor is going to approve this parole decision or is he gonna revoke it during that time that's where i realized you know what it's five months for me i can spend these next five months worrying about it or i could spend these five months preparing to grieve the loss of each of these men around me because i'm gonna be leaving them behind essentially forever did you make any real relationships in prison there's some amazing amazing human beings that i left behind so i'm glad i was able to share their stories in a book I was like, man, there's so many amazing ones. One particular named Robert, he's an older gentleman. He was a Navy corpsman at one time, about the age of my father. And in a weird sense, when him and I connected, he became like a father figure of sorts for me. I think he was very triggered by me because he was in Vietnam also. And he had a Vietnamese wife that was killed. But he said for some reason, it felt like when he first met me that I should have been the son that he never had because his wife was killed when she was pregnant because he was an American soldier. We were facilitators in an organization called the Alternatives to Violence Project. He was absolutely amazing in these workshops. One of the things that I had actually offered him before I left was I said, like, Robert, like I'm going to leave, but I would like to, to these next 150 days, how about we sit down for like an hour each evening and you just tell me your story and I'd like to write it down and I would like to put together and write something to memorialize you and give it to your family. They don't see the good work you're doing behind prison and I think the world doesn't see the good work that you're doing behind her. He never once sat down with me. I don't think he will ever go home. One of my really good friends, Ralphie, he's actually home now but he's the one that actually forced me to tell my mom that I love her because in our culture, particularly in my family, it's very hard to express emotions. My mom never once told me she loved me. Me and Ralph would sit there and make fun of like how his mom was. My mom would like, we'd share stories, we'd laugh about it. I can't believe you went to prison for murder. Yes, I did. That was one of the, the questions the commissioners asked me. I remember they had said, was this the first time that you shot somebody? 
I said, nope. And they said, how many times have you shot somebody? And I said, like, oh, I, I testified earlier that I was from a very violent Vietnamese gang. I have shot like multiple people. And then he's like, okay, um, I want to be truthful. And she goes, okay. She goes, what is your fear? I go, my fear is they're going to ask about other shootings. How did you do it? How did you tell your mom you love her? Oh my God. The chapter is called Conversations with My Mother. Were you able to tell your dad that you loved him? No, not in real life. What I did is I wrote the book, but I included my actual parole hearing transcripts as the hook at the beginning of every chapter. Like this one, chapter 12, conversations with my mother. Presiding commissioner, you were convicted by jury November 3rd, 2000. What happened to Nguyen? Inmate Huyen, I shot and murdered him. Presiding commissioner, why did this happen? Inmate Huyen, I had come out the club that night at the arena nightclub. When I came out, I had found out that some of my homeboys had gotten into a fight with a group of guys from a different gang. And then I go into the story. I had a great monkey named Ralphie. We got along from day one when I first met him, and I admired his spirit and simple love of life. He and I would have many different conversations with each other about family, friends, and our hopes and dreams for the future. Of course, both of our conversations revolved quite a bit around our mothers and the bizarre family dynamics each of us had experienced growing up. Ralphie was in prison for killing another man in his backyard. His friend was getting choked out, so Ralphie had jumped in, slammed his face into the ground, then bludgeoned him to death with a pickaxe. He covered up the body in the backyard and dumped it the next day. His crime was brutal and cold-blooded, yet Ralphie was one of the gentlest soul on the yard. One day while we were cooking dinner, I was talking to him about how my mom had never told us she loved us. I mean, I know she does and all, I was saying, but she never says it. She expresses it through her cooking, though, and that woman can cook. Do you love your mom, Quan? Ralphie asked in his discerning way. Of course I do. He was staring at me. So why don't you tell her? I mean, why does she have to tell you first? We both know that our parents were not perfect, and it is on us to take what we like and change the legacy of what we don't, right? In fact, I challenge you to tell your mom you love her this Sunday, friendo. Ralphie began giggling. Ralphie knew that every Sunday morning, I would get on the wall phone and call home for the allotted 15 minutes. He also knew that it would be difficult for me to tell my mom that I loved her. Okay, I can do that, I gulped. This was a challenge I knew was worth taking on, no matter how uncomfortable. During my earlier years in prison, I would call home and my mother would tell me about challenges and difficulties in her life. I always felt that I had to fix her problems. Because I could not and felt helpless about it, I would lash out and yell at her and tell her she needed to look at it this way or approach the issue from that way. I never once acknowledged that she had any issues, or if she did, they were all created in her head. Somewhere along the way, I learned that listening, true active listening, is both an art and a gift. There was something powerful in being there for my mom or any other human being who was suffering in some way. One of the other great gifts was the realization that I did not even have to agree with the person. What they were expressing was only their belief. This gave me a sense of self-awareness in my conversations, and I could remain detached and yet present with each person. I could continue to send good energy toward them. Sunday came, and as I walked toward the phone that morning, Ralphie peeked over the top of the book he was reading, The Alchemist. Hey, buddy. Make sure you tell your mom I love her too. He winked at me and began reading again. No matter how nonchalant his tone, I knew Ralphie would be waiting for me at the bunk area to see if I had followed through on my words. I walked down the stairs from my dorm to the phone sitting on the wall. We had signups for 15-minute phone calls, and Sunday mornings were the busiest. There was a man still on the phone that I had signed up for. We made eye contact, and he nodded and held up one finger to let me know he would be getting off shortly. I grabbed the phone with my own paper towel and took out a small spray bottle of disinfectant and sprayed the phone, dial pad, and seat. I dialed my mom's number and waited while the machine went through the pre-recorded messages. This was my weekly routine of calling my mother on a Sunday morning, but this morning I felt more nervous than ever. 
I love my mom more than anything, but there was not any conversation where we ever said the words, I love you. It felt unnatural to me. Hello, Kong, I heard my mom on the other end. Kong was Vietnamese for child, and it sounded so tender. Hi, mom, how was your week? This was how our conversations went every Sunday, with me asking how her week went and her updating me with whatever was going on in her life. She was telling me about work and then began telling me about my little niece and how cute she was. Many times, like today, I was amused at what she saw as important. I was stalling and I could feel my heart pounding in my chest. The seconds ticked by and part of me was hoping that she had hung up prematurely. I knew it was now or never. I knew Ralphie would be waiting on me at our bunk area to see what happened. Okay, mom, you have a good week, okay? Yes, Gong. I braced my left hand on the wall and nervously sputtered. I love you. I heard the intake of her breath on the other end, and before she could respond, I hung up the phone. My heart was still pounding as I walked up the stairs to my dorm. Halfway up, I saw Ralphie sitting on the top bunk, watching me with a gleam in his eye. So, how goes it, friend, though? He asked. It went well, I answered. Did you tell your mom you love her? And what did she say? You ain't getting off the hook that easy, dude. Well, I did tell her. She was talking the whole time, and then when time ran out, I told her I love her at the end. Ralphie leaned his head back, and was grinning with the biggest smile. Well, what did she say? Did she say I love you too? Um, I don't know. I hung up right after I said it. What? Are you kidding me? Ralphie began jumping up and down in one place while we both laughed. He opened up his arms and gave me a hug. I'm proud of you, friendo. This is a good beginning. Now it falls on you to tell your mom you love her every week. Next time, make sure to give her a chance to tell you she loves you too. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I didn't know if you were going to do it. <laughs> I didn't know if I could do it. Oh my God, did you continue to say I love you after that? Yeah, I guess I should just tell you more. Let's see. You were such uh, a prolific writer. You like it? Oh my uh, gosh. I love it. Thank you. Okay, okay. We both wiped the tears from our eyes in case the men in our dorms saw us. I knew the tears were healing, but there was a part of me that felt it was still wrong to cry as a man. I was grateful for such a great friendship. Who would have thought that it would take a life sentence for me to figure out what friendship and male bonding was all about? The following week, I allowed my mom the space to tell me she loved me too. It felt unnatural at first, but as time went on, it became a habit. It felt so good to hear that she loved me. Of course, not all our conversations had me feeling good inside. My mother came to visit me. Every time I had a visit with my family and friends, I was truly excited and happy inside. This day was no different. We were sitting inside the visiting room, across from each other at tables that were about a foot high. She warmed up some cheeseburgers from the vending machines, and I ate them all. Our discussion eventually came around to my upcoming hearing. I am so scared about your board hearing, Gong, she said to me softly. Mom, what are you scared of? I am scared for you inside the hearing. I have been praying and praying for you each week at Mass. I even prayed and let God know that I would be willing to die early as long as they let you go home. I am scared that they won't let you go home. I gently pushed away the urge to laugh, or even worse, lash out at her and dismiss her feelings. Why was she so focused on me being at home? But I also knew there were some things that I felt strongly about, and it was time she understood my position on them. A few years earlier, before my first hearing, I admitted to her I was the shooter and had lied at trial. I apologized to her and let her know I was absolutely sorry for my actions. The way she responded, my gut told me she had known the whole time, yet she had never wavered in her love for me throughout the years. Mom, one of two things will happen inside that hearing. Either they find me suitable and they let me go home, or they deny me parole and tell me to come back in a few years. I reached across and held her hands. The familiar dryness of the skin on her palms gave me reassurance. This is such a precious woman, and I must try to honor her in every way for the rest of my life. I took a deep breath, looked up at her, and began, Mom, you do realize what I am in prison for, right? She flinched and looked away from me. Her hand squeezed mine weakly, 
almost as if she did not want to hear what I had to say next. Mom, don't get me wrong. I want to go home too. I want you to realize how I see things today. Let me ask you this. I leaned forward in my chair and saw the tears begin to well up in her eyes. And she looked away. Let's say that night I had been the one that had been killed. How would you feel? What if you were to go to the board hearing of the man that had killed me, and he tells you that he is sorry, and look at all the good things he is doing in prison now? Do you think that would be enough, Mom? Would that be enough to make up for the child that you had brought into this world? My words were hurting her, I could tell. Mom, the man I killed was named Min Nguyen. He also has a mother. Her name is Julie Nguyen. Where do you think she goes right now if she wants to see her son? A gravestone, like when we want to see Dad, right? Can we just be grateful that I am alive and that I have become a better person and that we can still hug each other and be in each other's presence? My mother, through her sobs, nodded her head, and I saw that she finally began to understand. You make me want to cry. Have you cried? I've cried a lot. After but that's this, I, begin to grieve. I am going to call my mom and tell her that I love her. I don't remember the last time I've done it. In your honor. Moms are the best. Were you angry at God? Mm -hmm. I want to know how you got involved with a gang. Growing up in Utah, I never felt like I fit in. You know, we were the only Vietnamese family over there. I, I remember wishing, like, why can't me and my family look normal like all the kids around us? I told you about the conversations with my father chapter where um, we go on these rides. So I remember during the 80s, they had a bunch of those kung fu movies, you know, how they dub it. And I don't know where I got this idea, but I was watching and suddenly I realized, crap. That must be what I look like when I talk. That's why the kids make fun of me. So I remember getting in front of the mirror and saying like, hello, how are you? And seeing how my mouth moved. One of the early morning rides with my father, I brought it up. Like, why? Like we see on the TV, like, does, do our mouths move weird in some way? And that's when he just laughed in his way and just explained to me what dubbing is. We experienced quite a bit of racism. One of my earliest experiences, me and my brother getting beat up by kids and then by older kids with adults and everything watching and cheering them on and, and putting dirt in his mouth and me standing there. When we moved out here to California, that's the first time I went to school with colored kids. During the 80s, that's when the wave of the boat people started coming over. So these families could not speak any English. When they had children, they falsified their ages so that they could go back a few years. So then these kids, they're older than me. They're more emotionally and physically um, mature, and they couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Vietnamese. Like I was an outcast. In high school, I started hanging out with, there were kids that, that I felt accepted with and Unfortunately, these kids and their older brothers were people that later on became the influence for me to get involved with the gang life. What exactly is the gang life? Vietnamese gang, suddenly I feel this is where I was supposed to be my whole life. Um, us against every other gang and us against the world. This don't group of guys understand me. So I will give my life to them. I will protect them. What does it feel like to be shot at? Terrifying. There's a weird sense of excitement and exhilaration in it too. I would never want it to happen again. Does it feel the same so, way pulling the trigger? I think so. It feels more powerful because it's not like nobody's doing it to me. I'm doing it to them. And I see them ducking or I see them screaming or I see them taking off or whatever. You said that you didn't feel remorse. I did not feel remorse about 10, 12 years into my sentence. But now you do? Mm -hmm. I would like to say I do. When you were talking to your mom about taking responsibility for taking a life, did you ever feel like you deserved to be locked up with the key thrown away? There's a point where I think, okay, I could feel repulsed and remorseful about my actions, but at what point does this become a way of me just feeling sorry for myself? If the point is 
to be remorseful, then shouldn't it be action steps to amend or start to heal or make some type of impact or difference in the world? Because they didn't arrest me for like until five months after the murder. I had a feeling like cops were following me. My girlfriend at the time thought I was crazy. She said I was paranoid. Did you ever think about running away? No, because I didn't think they were going to have enough to get me. I already got rid of the gun. I didn't think my homeboys were going to testify against me. Did they give you up? Yes. One of the occupants in my car gave me up. How do you feel about that guy? Years ago, <laughs> I wish that he would have come into prison. Like when, when I was in prison, I would love to get him. He had his choices in what he did. I had mine. Hopefully he's at a better place too. I don't know. Did you ever hurt an innocent person? I don't think so. But I don't know. I mean, like, have we had drive-by shootings? Yes. Have we had shootouts in the middle of the streets? Yes. So bullets travel far, but I don't think so. Do you think about that asking, now? You're asking all these questions. Yeah, of course. I thought about, all, oh my God, like, I even thought about it even when, during my heyday in prison, when I was selling drugs and dope and tobacco, and I justified it because I get money. My justification was, well, if they don't buy from me, they'll buy from someone else. There was part of me that felt like bad. And then later on, I was like, man, I prayed on these men's addictions and I prayed on their addictions to get money from their family members. Like I'm a piece of crap. Can you own a gun now? No. What else can't you do? Yeah. I can't travel outside 50 miles without permission, use drugs. Were you on drugs before? No. Have you contacted the mom? I don't have a contact. And that's another one. Um, we're not allowed to contact any victims families. Would you want to? Yes, I think I would. I would be terrified, but I think I would like to tell her to her face that I am sorry for killing her son. What was it like entering the prison to live out your sentence? How old were you? Um, I was first arrested at 17. I think when I went to prison, because I remember you're at the county jail, you have to fight the case. I fought my case for about two years. So by the time I got to prison, what, 25? Oh my God, you're a baby. Yeah, I had a life sentence at 25. So how old are you now? I am 45 now. 45. Do you want to get married? Mm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm open to it, but uh, I don't know. Like sometimes I think, I don't know if it's in the cards for me to have a child or I don't know if it's in the cards for me to get married. So I don't know. And then as far as like re-entering the workforce, what has that been like? I created my first company six months after I paroled. It's a commercial cleaning company. So um, it's still running to this day. And I work full-time at a nonprofit that helps men and women with criminal histories to create their own companies through the journey of entrepreneurship. You've been so gracious with your time. I cannot wait to read the rest of your book. When is it coming out? Right now, the publishers told me it was like late August, early September. I brought up with the publishing team that I would like to somehow do where if every book that's purchased, then I would donate one to a person in prison. I have to tell them I put my mission in there of what I want to do. And then I go, yeah, the, what, is, what is the goal? Let's get this book into every prison. And hopefully it will help other men along the way. I have this amazing secret that I have inside, and I want to share it with the world. And you guys all think I'm crazy. Yes, the context is to help them go home from the board. But my ulterior motive is to get them to the same sense of inner freedom in their, in their mind. It doesn't matter if we're home or not. Your freedom can be found right here. And it comes through personal responsibility. It comes through facing your faults and owning up to it. I love that message. I think everybody needs that. That was an amazing interview. My dad has been involved in assisting reformed prisoners getting back into the workforce. And I cannot wait to hear what he has to say. Very interesting how all of us have an opportunity to be vindicated. 
or to find vindication. And it doesn't have to be necessarily in a certain place or with a certain person. It can be right in your own mind. You're talking about a person who didn't feel like he was fit in with anybody. And again, just like he said that he was taking advantage of people with vices, he had the same issue where not being accepted or not fitting in, where he was able to relate to, was someone taking advantage of him and having him join a gang or a brotherhood so that he could feel accepted. Gangs feed on people to give them what they're missing out of their regular lives. Children that are, are from parents like are in the service where they can get stationed in four or five different locations where they're constantly jumping all over the place. I'm sure that it's very, very hard for children to have to adapt and make new friends and fit in. Uh, you have cliques of people, and if you don't really know them, not necessarily are going to let you in, whether you like them or they like you. Here's a, a man that is just a kid where he's gotten involved in a very, very tough gangs where they were doing plenty of shootings. And the funny part is, is that this code that I'll never sell you out is the reason why he ended up going to jail is because he was sold out. This dedication and loyalty, when it, we're talking about this type of behavior, there are no rules. It's kill or be killed. It's go to jail or send the other guy to jail. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people will sell you out. Have you ever been sold out? I've been sold out plenty of times. And the funny part is, is that I try very hard not to let that affect me because I know a human nature, but it is a shame if your own family sells you out. You have to be able to have tough skin in this life. You have to be able to face up to a lot of adversities and Hopefully, the experiences of pluses and minuses in your life can mature you to be a, a better person and a more understanding person about all the variables of life. And this gentleman went to prison and did not have any remorse. But when you have time to really think about everything that you've done, again, that's where the time picture can be. He can really vindicate himself in his mind, and he can be free in his mind, even if he's in prison. There's a, a gentleman in South Africa that was put in jail for political uh, dissension, and he ended up coming out of jail. I think you know who I'm talking about, Mandela. And he ended up not only coming out of prison after being in prison for most of his life, but became the president of the country. He, he did such a masterful job of getting rid of apartheid in South Africa. And this is what this gentleman is trying to say, the same thing, that he found freedom in his mind. He decided to have vindication. I think that this is where you were able to hit a direct chord, a very dynamic thinking, when you can put yourself in the situation of the other person and be able to be rational and reasonable. And that's how all of us really should look at life, is instead of trying to take advantage of someone, try to put yourself in a formula where both peoples can succeed by putting yourself in their shoes and letting them understand where you're coming from in your shoes. Can you believe a murderer made me want to say I love you to my own mother? If that's the person that you had to get it from, I give him two points as well. We only have one mother and one father that bring us into this world with God's help, even though we know that we're not perfect and our parents are not perfect. The terms criminal and prisoner carry a very negative stigma. However, if you get down to the socio-political factors in the U.S. alone, people are put into unique circumstances that can factor in their situations. Prisoners are people like you and I. We've all made mistakes. They deserve a second chance. Wouldn't you like a second chance? For more information on reformed convict programs, go to bettercalldaddy.com. 
Grooming on men's below the belt area? Hell yeah. Bring on Manscaped, custom tools and care designed for your specialized needs. And ours too. Don't forget to subscribe. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.